0: When Ted Johnson came up with the idea of Snowbird, he said, we need to build a gondola in the canyon because there's no way you're going to be able to put cars on this road. It's a steep two-lane highway with the highest avalanche hazard index in North America by a wide margin. The pivotal moment for me was going to Europe when we were shopping for new tram cabins, and I rode a Doppelmayr 3S gondola in Ischgl, Austria, that system can move four to 5,000 people an hour. And I said, this is it. This is the solution that can work in Little Cottonwood Canyon.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester, hitting the Wasatch today in what may be the best ski area in America. First, a quick favor. Please visit stormskiing.com and subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter. There is an article there that accompanies this in every podcast episode that provides massive context on our conversation, including maps, charts, historical tidbits, and analysis of what makes each mountain special. If you just found the pod, welcome. The Storm is a big Utah house. And this is just the latest in more than a half dozen episodes I've recorded with the state's ski industry leaders. But I need you to understand something. The podcast is just a small part of the storm. The heart of this operation is the Storm Skiing Newsletter, where I'm breaking down the world of lift served skiing with a minimum of 100 articles every single year. And you will get them all delivered straight to your inbox when you subscribe. Stop getting your ski news from Facebook. Get it from the Storm Ski Newsletter instead. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter, Instagram, or threads at Storm Ski Journal. Before we get to Snowbird, a quick word from my sponsor, Profile Search International. Coming off a second consecutive season of record attendance, the ski industry has never been more competitive, and neither has the war for the best talent. How will you ensure that your organization is positioned to compete with the best and deliver results to your customers and stakeholders? Profile Search International is the only executive search and recruitment firm in the world that is 100% focused on the ski industry. They have been placing hundreds of leaders in roles that truly drive results at the best and most progressive ski areas for more than 30 years. Profile Search International uses their intimate understanding of skiing and its related industries and of the available candidates worldwide to align talent with your needs and goals. With offices in the U.S. and Canada, Profile Search International finds and negotiates with the right leaders for your team. Reach out to them directly at profilesearch.com or contact them by email or phone, or send me a note and I will forward it on to the amped up and ready to charge team at Profile Search International. That's ProfileSearch.com. Episode 145, Dave Fields, President and General Manager of Snowbird, Utah. If you were asked to design a perfect ski area, you might start here. It would be tall and steep, with several thousand vertical feet of sustained pitch. A single lift would take you from bottom to top. It would reliably pile up hundreds of inches of snow every single winter, and it would sit high enough to preserve that snow. It would stretch the season as long as possible, to the 4th of July some years, and it would be easy to get to without the need for a several-hour drive into the wilderness. Well, you're in luck, because by those measures, Snowbird, Utah, may be the finest ski area in America. 3,000 feet of sustained pitch served by a tram that travels from the bottom to the top in just 13 minutes. The resort not only scores an average of 500 inches of snow per season, but that snow tends to be among the lightest pow you will find anywhere in the world. Snowbird's base area sits close to 8,000 feet, allowing the mountain to push the season well into spring and occasionally even into summer. And the mountain's position at the top of Little Cottonwood Canyon means that Snowbird is just 45 minutes from Salt Lake City and from its ever-growing airport. Or at least it's only 45 minutes away when everything lines up perfectly, which happens a lot less often today than it once did. Because the truth is that while Snowbird is about as good as skiing gets anywhere, the place is dealing with some enormous challenges and exploding local population, the proliferation of multi-mountain passes, and the global profile that descended over the Wasatch following the 2002 Olympics have, among other factors, cluttered the mountain's canyon access road with traffic and moved Snowbird to the top of every skier's wish list. So what to do? How do you evolve one of American skiing's most beloved places without losing all the things that make it special? Let's find out. My guest today has been president and general manager of Snowbird Utah since 2018. Snowbird sits on 2,500 acres, served by 14 lifts on a 3,240 foot vertical drop. The resort averages 500 inches of snow per season, but smashed its all-time record with 838 inches of snowfall during the 2022-23 ski season. He has worked at the ski area since 2000. Dave Fields is my guest. Dave, welcome to the storm. I can't believe winter is almost back because it feels like snowbird just closed for skiing, but I am so ready for it. So good to have you here. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm doing great, Stuart. Thanks for having me. So I want to linger on that 838-inch figure for a moment. I mean, what was that like on the ground, Dave, to manage and live through 838 inches of snow in one winter?
0: Well, it was definitely historic on many levels. I should have known we were going to have a big winter when I was skiing on Mount Baldy on opening day. <laughs> we opened a couple of weeks early, and I've never skied deep powder, legit powder on opening day on Baldy and we were off to the races and i don't think i got my skinny skis on until april (laughs) we skied so much powder it was unbelievable now the other side of that is what it was like for our employees to go through it it was just incredible we had 42 snow nights and for those who don't understand what that is that's where the utah department of transportation closes the road um, in the evening and keeps it closed until the next day. So many of our employees have to spend the night here at Snowbird. And that happened 42 times in the winter. We had 98 avalanches hit the highway. Um, Some avalanche paths that I'd only heard about from my mentors, they ran like coal pit number four down at the bottom of the canyon. And as best we can tell that hadn't run since 1983 But at the end of the day, it was the kind of winter that makes people move to Utah for, because it's just powder day after powder day after powder day. And then I was just so proud of our team rising to every challenge, because if you're working a lift in Mineral Basin or anywhere for that matter this year, and you're shoveling every day to get that lift open, and we're not talking a little bit of shoveling, you're talking big days of shoveling and then it became an issue of trying to get snow off the roofs because we had so much snow here that we were worried about a roof collapse and so we would people would work all day and then we would pay them overtime to shovel at night and we ended up setting up a conveyor system a belt conf- conveyor like you'd see on a construction site to shovel snow onto that would then dump it off the side of the building. And it was, it was incredible, but I would say it was an amazing year until April. And then we had two five day periods where the road was closed for five days straight. And that was really tough. That was a hard way to end a really big winter, but we made it through and everybody was safe. And People ski more powder than they'll ever ski in another winter again, probably.
1: <laughs> I mean, an amazing thing to live through. What does that look like, Dave, when you have to keep employees overnight? How many employees are we talking about? And what's your contingency for that? Do you just have a big room like a gymnasium like we would see in a hurricane evacuation situation where you have cots set up? How do you house all those employees and how many employees are up there?
0: You're talking several hundred employees on a snow night because we operate four hotels here with 900 rooms, plus the mountain and the restaurants and all the other facilities. And then we also have groups and conferences that are here. So it takes a big team to get this place going in the morning. And sometimes you don't know if the road will open at eight o'clock in the morning or not at all. So you have to be ready to make sure our guests, are taken care of from a food and beverage side, from parking lots and plowing and then getting the mountain open so those who are here can go ski. So it's a big team. We feed them and then we try to get as many hotel rooms as we can and we stuff employees on any bed we can. That's our first choice. If we really have tight occupancy in the hotels, then we have blankets and pillows, and we've slept on floors and couches. And it's a real juggling act for our lodging team to try to find rooms for everybody. But we did a pretty good job of it this year. And most nights, almost all of our employees had a bed to sleep in, which is really important when you're working as hard as this team is to get them
1: out and open. They need a good meal and a good night's sleep before the next day. So it sounds like quite an adventure for anyone who works there. And I would imagine that this translated to pretty good business results for you. Ski Utah reported 7.1 million skier visits in Utah for the 2022-23 ski season. And for context, that was the all-time record beating the former record that was set just the previous season of 5.8 million. So that is an enormous jump for a mature market as Utah is. How did that translate on the ground? Dave, was that good for business? Did you see all time records of snowbird? What can you tell us about the 2022-23 ski season from, from that point of view? It was really good until it
0: wasn't. There's definitely a point of diminishing return when it comes to snow and April hurt. Mm. Being, having the road closed for basically two weeks straight really hurt, but it was still a really good season for us. And I think when you have the best snow in the country, that gets a lot of buzz it's on social media it's on endemic media everybody's talking about how it's just going off in utah and i need to get to utah so it really helps hotel bookings it really helps get people energized to go ski the local ski more december was amazing because we don't have the hotel occupancy in december that we do the rest of the year so you go out skiing and you knew most of the people on the tram it was incredible And we skied our brains out and really enjoyed it. And so we had a good year, maybe not as good as some of the resorts that had unfettered access and they could get everybody
1: to their resort every day. But it
0: was a really good year for us.
1: So as impressive as 838 inches is Alta right next door reported 903 inches and they closed a couple months earlier than Snowbird. It may not make sense for folks who are just looking at these two ski areas on a map and see that Alta literally shares a border with Snowbird. But what can you tell us, Dave, about the way the snow comes into the canyon and why Alta is able to get just a little bit more snow, but over a season adds up to quite a bit more than Snowbird?
0: The reason the skiing is so good in Little Cottonwood Canyon has a lot to do with the Great Salt Lake and a phenomenon called orographic uplift. So storms that come out of the Northwest, which many do, cross the Great Salt Lake and slam right into Little Cottonwood Canyon. An orographic uplift means the storms hit the end of this box canyon and then rise and deposit the snow um, here at Alta and Snowbird and then move on westward. So you see a lot of storms. When people get on planes and fly here is when the forecast is calling for a Northwest flow because that treats Little Cottonwood Canyon really well. And there are places on this mountain where we probably had 900 inches, but where we measure and we're lower in the canyon, it turned out to be in the 830 range. But the folks in Mineral Basin, who are shoveling out that lift would tell you there was easily 900 inches. (laughs) I'm sure. I asked one of our lift supervisors, Maddie, at the end of the year, I said, have you ever been in as good a shape as you are right now? And she said, I will never in my life be in as good a shape
1: as I am. (laughs) Where do you measure on the mountain? We measure Mm mid-mountain. And you, you don't have a top station as well? No,
0: we don't, um, not at Hidden Peak, but we measure mid-GAD and GAD2 and uh, a few different places. But yeah, that that's a, generally a mid-mountain snowfall number that we use.
1: So a phenomenal season to christen these new tram cars that you put in. Tell us about this project. Why was it time to upgrade the tram cars and how happy are you with that improvement?
0: Well, originally we wanted to have the new tram cabins for our 50th anniversary, but Mm -hmm. because of the pandemic, that got pushed back and we had both tram cabins operating this year after a problem with the installation where the rigging failed and one of the new cabins actually dropped and was destroyed. Mm -hmm. So we had both going for this winter and they were amazing. They are so beautiful and I really thought that I would miss the old tram cabins, but when we took them out and you really spent time with them, they showed their 50 years, mm-hmm. they were very old and had some old technology. And with the new tram cabins, we upgraded the drive system and the gate system. And there's a lot more technology. Uh, we put in a new motor, so it was more than what people saw. And they are really cool. And then, of course, this summer, we installed the balconies where you can ride on top of the tram cabin in the summertime. And that is stunning to ride up to a hidden peak to 11,000 feet on the roof of a tram cabin. And they're just so cool.
1: So talk about the decision, Dave, to upgrade the existing tram and swap out the cars and the drives and everything you just detailed rather than tearing the whole thing out and starting over as Jackson Hole did. And they actually lost two full tram seasons from 2006 to 2008, and they had to put up a temporary lift at the top of the mountain, etc. So talk about that decision. And did Jackson Hole's experience play into that at all in the fact that for two years they had to do without a tram?
0: No, I wouldn't say we really looked at Jackson's experience. What we've been doing is replacing parts of the tram for a long time. Um, this is a Garavanta machine, and it has served us very well. The towers are still in really good condition, so they can go on for pretty much indefinitely. And over the last 10 years, we've been replacing track cables and haul rope and tram cabins and all the motors and bull wheels and everything. So we've been taking it in bite-sized chunks rather than taking out the whole thing and replacing it because we think that skeleton is good. And now it's pretty much a new tram other than the towers. And we're very happy with how that worked out.
1: Dave, is that more of a financial decision to spread that cost over the years? Or is it really service and saying, the more we do, the longer we have to take the tram offline. And I know you run that thing year round. What's the primary factor that you consider in deciding to upgrade that over a period of a decade?
0: I think when we started, The annual replacement of different elements of the tram cost was definitely a factor. I remember reading about what Jackson spent on that tram then, Mm -hmm. and I can only imagine with inflation what it would
1: cost today to replace the whole thing.
0: It's a very big number.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you mentioned, during installation, the red car fell, was damaged beyond repair, What can you tell us about that day, Dave? Where were you when you heard it happened? How did you react? Just take us through and tell us what you can.
0: Well, we were anxiously awaiting the tram cabin's arrival, and I was down at the mouth of the canyon taking pictures and video, and a couple of my friends had come out, and it was the most exciting day I'd had in my career here at Snowbird, and we watched them come up the canyon, and... They got moved over into place and i was here for the first day and then i was down in southern utah in tory and our senior director of mountain operations drake jake treadwell called me and i'll leave some of the profanity out but uh he said you're not going to believe this but the new red cabin just dropped and landed on the old red cabin oh. and at that point, uh, we talked about had anybody been hurt and no one had been hurt you, and I got in my car and drove up here and met a very long faced Jake in my office and we walked out and looked at the scene and got on the phone with Doppelmeyer and we started working on a plan that night and they were here the next day and I was so impressed with their ability to manufacture a whole new cabin and get it here in time for the winter. Um, It was just incredible how hard they worked and there were definitely difficult conversations along the way, but they were very invested in making sure we had it here in time for the winter. So in the summer, we operated after that um, incident with the tram, we operated with one tram uh, loading public. And then the old cabin was the old red cabin was rebuilt and put in, but couldn't carry passengers because we didn't have the new electronic drive system in that cabin. So we operated for the summer with one cabin. And then last winter we had both up and running. We were off to the races.
1: I mean, it's phenomenal that Dobmeyer Garaventa was able to make that new car just to underscore this, I mean, number one, I believe it was manufactured in Europe. And number two, this is not like a chair on a quad where there's hundreds of them and you can just take them off one lift and put them on another. This is a custom built thing for snowbirds. So just talk a little bit about that piece of it and how specialized this car has to be and how how they were able to get that done and move it back over to Utah in time for the season.
0: Well, I can tell you, I know a lot more about ocean shipping than (laughs) and uh semis going across the country i've never had an ocean liner tracker on my phone until (laughs) this came to pass and i just think that they realized that we had a problem and whatever needs to happen to make this right and get a new car at snowbird in time for the winter needs to happen and they I don't know what they did. I always wondered if somebody got their tram cabin late because <laughs> ours got moved to the front of the line. Never heard that. Right. But I think CWA and Garaventa and Doppelmayr, they all got together and they just rallied. And it was a nervous summer watching that, getting the updates um, of what the progress was. But luckily, a lot of the delays in the ports had freed up by the time it was coming here that was a real stressor but they got it here they trucked it up they got it installed and we're super happy with how it turned out it looks really good
1: looking back at the day that it happened were there mistakes that they made that they said okay we're going to do things way different when we install this next car to make sure it doesn't happen
0: i think there were a lot of learnings and they were very transparent with us with what happened and at the end of the day nobody got hurt and a tram cabin can be rebuilt and they did that and they sent it out here in a timely fashion and we're happy with the resolution i think there's undoubtedly takeaways on their side and I think they operate as partners to the ski industry, and they did a really nice job of correcting and learning and supporting their teams. You know, this is a big deal for an installation team when you have an incident like this, and they really supported them and turned it into a situation where the cabin's even better than it was before.
1: What was the fate, Dave, of the destroyed red cars, the old one and the new one? Did you scrap those? Are, are they? Are you trying to figure out what to do with them? What, what did you do with those cars? So the damaged
0: cabin, we salvaged anything out of it that was in good condition and reusable. And then the old cabins, we are working on bringing them back. It looks like one of them will be a food and beverage outlet and. Both of them could end up being used for food and beverage, but uh, we have those in process right now and they won't be ready for this winter, but should be for next summer because there's a lot of sentimentality about those. I definitely had some offers from some people who said, hey, if you want to sell those, I'm ready with my (laughs) checkbook today. A lot of people thought it'd be cool to have the old cabin in their backyard.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. I mean, Dave, you said that when those cabins arrived, the new ones, it was the best day of your career, most exciting day of your career. And I have to imagine the day that red car fell was one of the most disheartening of your career, but you're the leader of the resort. You got to pick yourself up and keep moving. How did you move through that disappointment and rally your team and say, you know what, this is a setback, but we're still going to make winter happen at Snowbird and we're going to make this great. How did you deal with that?
0: Well, I've learned you can't linger on things like that too long. You have to move quickly to figure out what is the solution? How are we moving forward and what's, what steps need to be taken? And the team from Doppelmayr was here the next day. They came in from around the country and that really helps because you feel like you're not alone making these decisions. You have a partner says, yep, we have a problem. Let's figure out how to get through this and get a resolution. So you can't spend a lot of time lingering on, obviously we investigated it and we brought in engineers and we all looked at it. And, but at the end of the day, it's, how are we moving forward? And it was a really hard time for the tram team because they dealt with COVID and mask enforcement. And then all of our, electricians and mechanics and tram operators. They then had to figure out how to operate the tram with one cabin and get through that winter and then uh, have a prolonged installation calendar. But they really rallied. I was super proud of them and how they were able to adapt to these changing conditions. And then you have a new piece of equipment and it's super high tech and you're trying to figure it out and your training window is narrow, but they did a really, really nice job of figuring out the new equipment in a big winter with a dynamic snowfall and weather situation. It was We had a lot of storms last winter, so they dealt with many curveballs in a very nice way, and I was very proud
1: of them. Well, it's a beautiful machine, and it must feel great to have that thing up and spinning and, and will be for the foreseeable future. You know, I, I have to think, Dave, that one of the things that helped you move through that was just experience and knowing that the snow might melt in the spring, but it always comes back. You've been at Snowbird since 2000, as I mentioned in the intro. Where did you grow up? Are you a local guy, Utah guy? Did you grow up skiing? Let's, let's get into how you came to Snowbird here. Sure. Yeah, I was born and
0: raised here in Utah. I was born the same year Snowbird opened in 1971, and my dad was a ski instructor at Alta for 30 years. He was a part-time instructor for most of my life. I learned to ski at Alta on the rope tow, and then I went to high school and college here in Utah. I attended the University of Utah, and so I've spent a lot of my life skiing in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And it's a very special place to raise your family. And I'm sure my parents felt the same way. Um, my dad was the house instructor in the 1960s at the Rustler Lodge. So he and my mom, before my brother and I were born, lived at the Rustler Lodge. And oh, wow. so it, I have a lot of connection to this
1: place. So what was your first job up there? What was your first job in skiing up the canyon?
0: I worked in retail in Salt Lake City at a shop that sold backcountry ski equipment and mountain bikes for 10 years. And then I was a journalist in Park City for the Park Record newspaper. I was the sports editor there for three years. And then I came here in 2000 um, as the assistant director of public relations. And to me, I had hit gold, I had a dream <laughs> job. My office was 100 yards from the base of the Peruvian lift. I skied 100 days my first full winter here, and that was pre-Olympics. So there was a ton of media coming here from around the world to figure out what was Utah all about. It's hard to believe now that we have 7.1 million (laughs) skier visits in the state. But back in 2000, when you were talking to press from around the world, most of them couldn't even find utah on a map wow you would literally have to tell them well we're between colorado and nevada and (laughs) they wanted to don't know about mormons and the weird liquor laws and they really looked at you like really they're skiing in utah it's hard to imagine today that that was the mindset but it really was but it was so cool to meet all these journalists from around the world doing pre-olympic stories and take them out skiing and get to know them. And many of them are still friends today.
1: I mean, I have to imagine that when they realized what they were dealing with, with that LCC POW, they were just, their jaws would drop. I mean, what was that like to watch them go through that realization that they found something really special?
0: Well, it started at the airport. They would fly in and they'd be up at Snowbird in 45 minutes. And they're saying, how can this be? How can you have a major metropolitan city with this kind of skiing so close and then you take them skiing and they were blown away and then you take them out to dinner and they could have a glass of wine or a drink and they say oh well i thought it was, you couldn't drink here yeah no no you actually can and it's fine we have amazing food and beverage and you can get a drink and they the word spread quickly. And I think the Olympics for Utah were a real turning point in the awareness of this place because you track the visitation, um, to our ski resorts since the Olympics, it's gone up, but really the state has added over a million people since the Olympics. I think we were 2.4 million when we hosted the Olympics in 2002, and now we're at 3.4 and real. Prognosticators are saying we're going to be at five million by
1: 2050. Wow. So it'll just keep coming. So you start out and you have this great job and you're taking the media around. Work your way up to general manager in 2017, president in 2018. Take us through that journey, Dave, and and how you wound up running the resort.
0: Well, I was lucky to be given a lot of opportunity. I spent three years as the assistant director of PR and then and working for an amazing guy named Fred Rollins, who taught me a lot. And then when he retired, I became director of PR and advertising. And then slowly, I was just given more and more responsibility. And then uh, Bob Bonar said to me, I would like to give you more responsibility. I think at that time I was over events and the ticket office and he named me the vice president of resort operations. And that gave me an opportunity to get my fingers in lots of things, be exposed to many different departments and learn. And that was really my approach to the whole thing is I don't know much about a lot of these different areas. And I just spent time listening and learning and riding in snowcats and working with lift crews and going out on routes and listening to people who had worked here for 40 to 50 years in some cases about what it takes to operate this place. Because there's a lot of complexity to it with the amount of snow we get, the avalanche control that we do the hotel business, the conference business, the Oktoberfest. So I was really grateful for that opportunity. I think I spent eight years as vice president of resort operations. And that gave me the confidence to be able to accept the role of general manager and ultimately president and GM because I'd had that time to learn and
1: get familiar with how this place works. Dave, tell us about Bob in particular. He was the president and CEO for 21 years before you assumed the roles and he had actually worked at the resort since its founding in 1971. Talk about Bob's legacy and what you learned about being a leader from working with him.
0: Well, Bob was amazingly generous in his time and he was also willing to give me opportunities and I'm this marketing guy that didn't know anything about anything. And he just slowly gave me more and more opportunity to learn. And he also gave me a seat at the table when we were making decisions, whether it was about mountain collective or lift replacement, or the ability to interact with other GMs by representing him on ski Utah meetings. So I had a lot of exposure to the other GMs around the state. And then as we joined Mountain Collective, the other GMs from around North America. And he really taught me about leading through example. Bob was never afraid to bust a table or wash a dish or serve a bratwurst. And that was really eye-opening to me to see how hard he worked on the front lines to help departments that were struggling. Maybe. We were having a hard time hiring. Maybe we had a big storm. Maybe it was the economic downturn and we had to cut way back. Bob was never afraid to jump in and do a job that people might say, oh, the president of the company shouldn't be doing that. And that's where I learned that if you're going to ask somebody to do something at this company, don't be afraid to do it yourself. And I, I try to do that today because that's how I was taught is work hard and help departments that need help and be available to them. And he also taught me about perseverance. Bob always told me that when he floated the idea of putting lifts in mineral basin, people told him he was crazy. Why would you do that? It points the wrong direction. It's east facing. That'll never be a good ski area. And he stuck to his guns and said, no, I think it's going to be pretty good. Well, lo and behold, it's our most popular (laughs) pot at the resort. Right. And all those people who were saying, oh, you're an idiot. Why would you ever put lifts back there? You don't hear from them anymore. (laughs) Now they say,
1: when's Mineral going
0: to open? (laughs) Yeah, that's all you hear when you're there. I've learned a lot about perseverance from Bob, and I really owe a lot of what's happened in my career to him. And I still talk to him all the time, and we ride bikes together, and he's, He's a very special person who means a lot to me.
1: So, Bob also presided over some really big changes in the resort and how it was run. In 2014, the Bass family, who had helped found the resort in the 1970s, sold it to the Cumming family, who owned Powder Core, but it didn't become part of Powder Core till later. Talk about that transition period at the resort, Dave. And I appreciate that you were not in the leadership role than that you are now. But what was it like to live through that? And I know sometimes there's some uncertainty of the surrounds periods like that.
0: Well, Bob was instrumental in that sale. And what meant a lot to Bob and to Dick Bass were that the resort being in the hands of a family that really had a passion about this place. And I never understood how important that was going to be until I started working with Ian coming, and then John and David coming, and they spent their whole lives skiing at Snowbird. They have a home here. They had had a condo at the inn. Then it was called Turamura, but John and David were raised skiing at Snowbird, and to work for a family that has such a connection to a place, it really comes through in every conversation and every decision we make about Snowbird because they think about it in generational terms, not in, hey, what's best for this quarterly earnings or what's a quick return? They want to make decisions because they expect their children and grandchildren to be owning this resort. And that's really special. I appreciate that a lot because I care deeply about this place, but so do they.
1: How did Snowbird ultimately become part of powder? Because at first it was separate, they sort of quietly folded it in at one point there wasn't a big uh, media push around this. Take us through that, when that happened and how. Sure, Ian Cumming
0: had long wanted to own Snowbird and he talked to his sons about the acquisition when Dick's health started failing due to pulmonary fibrosis. And obviously John and David were very encouraging that Ian buy it and he did. And we immediately started working with the powder group on partnerships. But it wasn't until Ian's passing and he gave the resort to John and David that we've fully integrated with powder. And that has been a really good opportunity to have resources beyond what we traditionally did here at Snowbird. We were a standalone resort. So if we had a technology problem, we had to figure it out ourselves and when we were making big decisions we didn't have a lot of people to consult with and now you had this whole network of ski resorts and expertise so if i have a challenge i can obviously talk to tim brenwald or justin sibley at powder but i can also call my fellow powder gms i can call Dustin at Copper or Mike at Killington or Hervig up at Silver Star, any of these people who have loads of experience and ask them, what's it like? What? How are you dealing with this problem? What are you doing about this? And it's a great resource to have that. And now we have those relationships in marketing, in technology, in finance, and we're not just an independent, company trying to figure out the ski industry, especially in such a dynamic time like right now.
1: Yeah. From a business point of view and the way you just explained it, it totally makes sense. There does continue to be a lot of cultural capital around that cachet of being independent. And there was a lot of rejoicing recently when Jackson Hole, rather than selling to one of the big conglomerates, the Kemmerer, Family sold it to another group of locals, and there's a lot of fretting these days around when an independent ski area becomes part of a larger conglomerate, and a lot of fears around what it'll do to that identity. Snowbird still feels like an independent, and it's still, I don't think that folks talk about it as being part of this big conglomerate. There's not a lot of powder branding, for example, when you're around there. How has powder been able to achieve this, having had a front row seat there? How were they able to integrate Snowbird into a larger portfolio while still retaining that spirit of independence, which is part of what sets the place apart? Well, I think
0: first and foremost, it's family owned. They're local. John and Christy live here in Park City. And they very early on when we started working with them, they talked about making each resort the best version of itself. They were not interested in creating a homogeneous experience between all powder resorts each one of the powder resorts has its own independent character and feel and culture and you don't want to lose that that's really important that a place feels authentic and i think snowbird does to spades and it's just really nice to be able to operate a resort that's in the best interest of our season pass holders and our guests and the people who come up here in the summertime for oktoberfest we do what works for snowbird but at the same time we have the resources of a larger resort company so when we're making technology decisions about point of sale systems or ticket systems or we're looking at multi-resort pass products or we're trying to make a change in our season pass offering we can bounce ideas off other people and try things and being able to learn from a resort like copper or killington or eldora or these other resorts that's really helpful because you can take their learnings and their successes and sometimes their failures and say okay how would that work here at Snowbird? what works in our environment each market is different we have this major metropolitan area here in Salt Lake City. We have a lot of competition in the Wasatch Front. So each market's different and needs to be treated uniquely. The Storm Skiing Podcast but is a Quicksilver film. production. To have the resources production. And expertise to analyze decisions and implement technology that improve the guest experience.
1: That's really nice. Yeah, you've really, Snowbird has really, over your tenure, tiptoed into all these different coalitions. And I want to focus on multi-mountain passes here for a little bit, Dave, it's, it's interesting looking at this from a broader point of view. When you started at Snowbird, there were these seven distinct ski areas in the Wasatch. Each had their own pass. They weren't any of them united on a pass. Now, if you get an Epic pass and an Icon pass, you can ski all seven, which is now six because Vale combined Park City and Canyons. Just zooming out a little bit, what's been your reaction to watch this firsthand of going from seven distinct independent ski areas to ski areas that are united around two national coalitions and draw folks in from all over what's that been like to watch
0: well i'm just amazed at how quickly the marketplace has changed and i think from a guest perspective for the better you can get access to six resorts in utah on one pass that's pretty incredible yeah and am I shocked that we got to this place so quickly? Yes. But the ultimate winner in this is the guest who maybe they don't want to have one resort season pass. Maybe they want to have optionality and flexibility to bounce around. One of the really cool things about Utah is how different each of the ski experiences is. And so that's a really good option for that pe- that person. We still sell a lot of season passes and our pass holders are super important to us. And we make a lot of decisions based on them, but to be able to have a season pass and an icon pass, that's good at six Utah resorts is pretty special. And if you asked me five years ago, would this be where we ended up? There's no way I would have predicted it, but I think we're giving people an opportunity to become skiers and travel and really lean into the sport and explore places. And maybe they want to go up to Big Sky or maybe they want to go to Jackson. Maybe they want to go over to Ski Aspen. That's good for the sport. When people are traveling and it's affordable to get your family in the sport, that's good. We need more of that. We need to be thinking more about how to create future skiers.
1: This is something that you've been... Participating in for quite a long time, Snowbird was an early adopter of the Mountain Collective Pass, which debuted around 2012, and Snowbird joined shortly thereafter. Talk about that experience, Dave, and what you learned from that, and ultimately whether that led to your decision to join the Icon Pass for its inaugural season in 2018. Mike Kaplan and Christian
0: Knapp approached us the first season, and it was kind of late. It was in the fall, and they said, hey, we're thinking about creating this new product and it'll be a multi resort pass and it'll be good for this winter and we'd like you to be involved. And we kind of chickened out. And if, if I have a regret, it's that we didn't get in on the first year. Right. Before resorts got in on the first year. And then they invited us to come over and meet with their resorts that were participating and go to the X games. And we went over and checked it out and spent time with them and learned what they we're trying to do with this product and have the best resorts in the world um, offered on one multi-resort pass that was kind of a sampler pass where you'd get a couple days at each resort. And we committed and we joined, and we were exposed to all these other resort leaders. At the time, you know, it was Jerry Bland and Rusty and ultimately Andy Worth and Dave Brownley and Ono and Bob, and again, going back to Bob, he invited me to all those meetings and I had a seat at the table and got to watch how these people were thinking about the industry and dealing with the different challenges. And it really became an opportunity, not unlike what I have with the powder GMs to call these people and say, hey, how are you dealing with this situation? What are you doing about that? And the Mountain Collective has worked really well for us because people travel around the country. It tends to be super dedicated skiers. They have a high likelihood to stay here at Snowbird, and it gives you four days in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And it's a very nice product and gave us the confidence to look seriously at the Icon Pass when it came out and get involved
1: with that. So the Mountain Collective gives skiers two days at Alta and two days at Snowbird. When Snowbird joined the Icon Pass, it was as a combined destination with Alta. And you shared those five days, or skiers shared those five days on the Icon Base Pass and seven days on the Icon Pass with Alta. Take us through that process, Dave, of negotiating that with Alta and making that decision and why ultimately it made sense to combine days for a little Cottonwood rather than having your own allotment of icon Pass days.
0: Yeah. We felt like the jump from two to four was okay. You weren't going to cannibalize season pass sales and it would keep people in the Canyon a little bit longer. And what works really well with the mountain collective is clustering and having a few resorts for people to bounce around to in a market on a road trip there tends to be a lot of road trips in the mountain collective and they'll go to different locations so we opted to have four days in little cottonwood canyon and it's worked out really
1: nicely you ended up with your own allotment of icon base pass days anyway at snowbird because in 2022 Alta followed jackson hole and aspen off of the icon base pass so now you have to buy up to the icon base plus to get those five Alta days, and you you still get the seven days on the Icon Pass. When Alta made that decision, did they consult with you? Did you consider leaving the Icon Base Pass as well? And ultimately, why did you decide to stay on that tier?
0: Yeah, Alta made that decision independently of us. Um, We obviously operate as two separate businesses. And what we heard from our guests is that that product at that price point really worked for them. They were willing to live with blackout dates on the busiest weekends and holiday periods, but it allowed them to have access to Snowbird and the other mountains. And we really felt like it was an important product for those skiers and snowboarders who wanted to be at Snowbird. So we opted to stay on the base pass and it works for us. We think it gives people access and they really enjoy being able to come to Snowbird. So we're happy with it and we're not planning to move off of it.
1: Have you seen any spillover from Alta's decision? Do you get more Icon Pass visits that maybe formerly would have gone next door but they stay there at Snowbird?
0: No, I really haven't seen a big jump there. Not so, really.
1: So it sounds like you're. Cons- committed to keeping Snowbird on the Icon Base Pass indefinitely. Is that fair or or is this still something that you rethink every year? No, I think that's a fair statement. We like
0: having the Icon Base Pass, the full Icon, our Season Pass holders. And we've launched some new Season Pass products. And then we have a Flex 5 uh, program that we modified and revamped for this year. So we feel like we have a lot of products at different price points that work for different customers. And the obviously, we look at pass pricing every year and products, but we like where we are right now with being able to offer different products for different people based on where they want to ski and how much they want to spend.
1: So the Icon Pass has been a little controversial for locals, and it's become a little bit of a bogeyman in the ski world as far as being an easy thing to blame for crowding. And you've mentioned a number of things that have been happening that also contributed to Snowbird being busier than it was when you showed up 23 years ago. You know, the the Olympics, the growth in Salt Lake City itself, uh, improvements to air travel, and, and just reputation and getting around. To what extent do you think that the Icon Pass holds credit or blame or however you want to frame it for the current situation in Little Cottonwood Canyon and some of the traffic that you're seeing? And and to what extent is this just kind of become a scapegoat for some other, for a very complex network of things that are happening to change that ski experience from what it once was? Well,
0: I think there's your answer right there. You just said it. I think Utah is growing really quickly. And We saw a huge boom here in Utah in outdoor recreation around COVID. And whether I'm hiking or playing golf or riding my mountain bike or riding my motorcycle, there are more people recreating in Utah than I've ever seen. And I've been here my whole life. Every trailhead is packed. Every golf course, you can't get a tee time. And everything I do outdoors is busier than it used to be. And whether or not the multi-resort passes are contributing to that, I don't know. But I do know that they're giving people access to outdoor recreation, which does not seem to be subsiding here in Utah post-COVID, if we can use that term. Hopefully, we're approaching (laughs) post-COVID. But um, I see recreation on the rise. I see Utah on the rise. It's the fastest-growing state in the nation so there are a lot of factors at play and do more people have access to snowbird than before yes they absolutely do but we can also spread them out Um, one thing that we've learned that's very interesting is with these multi-resort passes if little cottonwood canyon is closed a lot of people can push off to other locations which is great for them But we can literally break these other resorts when we have an extended closure in Little Cottonwood Canyon. And so now I hear the GMs of the other Utah resorts advocating for gondola and Mm -hmm. getting a transportation solution figured out for Little Cottonwood Canyon because they can't handle the number of people that migrate to their resorts on a Little Cottonwood Canyon closure day.
1: Yeah. I definitely want to get into the gondola in a moment here. I I want to ask you a couple more things about Icon Pass. One of the great benefits that your pass holders can take advantage of is to add an Icon Base Pass on for just $349. And that benefit has been available for several seasons now. The issue is that the Icon Base Pass has been slowly shedding some of its better ski areas, more attractive destinations, Aspen, Jackson Hole, as I mentioned, Alta, uh, Taos, Sun Valley, and then for your pass holders, probably most significantly, Deer Valley Alta and Snow Basin. As resorts have fallen off this product, have you heard from complaints from your pass holders that they can't upgrade that add-on pass to a full Icon Pass or even an Icon Base Plus Pass?
0: Yeah, I have heard that occasionally from pass holders for sure. Um, I think that Icon Base Pass add-on was an amazingly generous offer. And I think a lot of people took advantage of it and less do now than before, but it's still a really good deal to add that to your snowbird season pass purchase. and A lot of people still do it, but um, it's not valid, like you say, at as many resorts, but it still gets you access to a lot of places and it's a good, um, even one road trip pays for that. Yeah. So I think you'll see people continue to take advantage of that as long as Altera wants to offer it. I think it's
1: a really good deal. So Snowbird has long offered a joint pass with Alta called the Alta Bird Pass. And last year for the 2022 to 23 ski season, this pass debuted at $1,649. For 2023 to 24, the price shot up to $2,488. Early bird, it's now 2,788 at current prices. We're recording this on September 18th. It was basically the exact same price as buying a full Alta and full Snowbird Pass. What happened with the Alta Bird Pass this year, Dave? Why did the price go up so much? Well, we
0: looked around the market and looked at season pass prices for the top destinations in the world, mostly here in North America, and we realized that we have two of the best resorts that you can ski, um, in our case, ski and snowboard. And we really felt like the price wasn't where it needed to be. And so we moved it to what you just described, which is the same price as a season pass at Alton, and a season pass at Snowbird. And we just felt like it was underpriced at the time. And this gives you complete unlimited access seven days a week throughout the holidays at two of the best resorts in North America.
1: So it sounds like that's the new baseline, Dave, and there's no intention to bring the price back down. Is that right? Um, I wouldn't say that.
0: Absolutely. Forever is a long time. (laughs) We talk every year about that product and where it should be. So we'll see where it goes. But yeah, I don't expect to see it come down dramatically from where it is right now.
1: On the other end, pretty amazing new deal from Snowbird this year for adult season pass holders. They can add a Freeloader Pass, as you've been calling it, for kids 18 and under for free to that Snowbird Pass. I mean, I've a lot of resorts do this for 12 and under. 18 and under is a whole other thing. Really amazing value for families, Dave. Talk about the Freeloader Pass and why you decided to introduce this product.
0: Well, I'll start with the name. Um, When that was first proposed, I think it was Tess Hobbs, our Senior Director of Marketing, who came up with that name and I laughed so hard. And I thought there's no way we can call this pass a freeloader pass. <laughs> and we ended up rolling with it. And I just, it cracks me up every time I think about it. But really that pass was it, recognizing that families are not necessarily the, the two, one mom, one dad, two kids. And if we're serious about getting more people exposed to skiing, and giving families the flexibility and honoring that there's diversity and people want to have flexibility in their past Uh, we needed to behave differently it used to be called the family four pack and it was two parents and two kids right now so rigid and so we came up with this idea and launched it and it's been very popular people have really appreciated that hey maybe we only have one kid but the neighbor kids always want to go skiing and we can take them and introduce them to the sport or maybe there's a nephew or a niece who wants to come and it's really been encouraging to see how well that's received and i think it's important that we continue to make strides towards introducing more people to this sport and i think this past does that and it has a great name. And it was scary to open it up, you yeah. know, and take the guardrails off of it, but it's been great. And the feedback has been so good from our pass holders who say, thank you. Yeah. You know, we've wanted to do this. And I've even heard from a couple of people who said, well, we were already doing this. We just kind of have done the pass forms, but it's another example of being able to adapt and be flexible based on the marketplace and try new things, which I'm really thankful that we have the freedom to try new things and experiment. And if they don't work, we'll do something different the next year. But in this case, it's been very popular, well-received, and I think we'll keep it going.
1: Another relatively new product at Snowbird and throughout Powder is Fast Tracks. And you're entering your third season with this, which is basically an add-on to your ticket, your lift ticket, and it allows you to go into a lane and cut ahead. How has this product been going two years in and how have you evolved as it's gone along?
0: Well, the biggest improvement to the product is for this winter, we just shifted to RTP. We run Siriusware, mm-hmm. which is a ticket sales platform, and we're now on RTP. So now we'll be able to just add it to your ticket media whether it's a day or a season pass you won't have to have another piece of media that you're showing the attendant at the lift lines and that will really improve the guest experience you know sales were pretty soft in year one but they really improved last year and we think this will make great strides in the guest experience it's so much easier when you just add it onto your pass and you ski up and go through the gates and get on the
1: high-speed quads. There was some controversy around this product when it was introduced. I asked your colleague, Mike Salomano, the president of Killington about this a couple of weeks ago. He said that because they've kept the numbers so low that essentially people weren't even really noticing that it was there. What's your experience been like at Snowbird? How are you... Metering this product so that it's not disruptive to folks who decide that they can't they don't want it or just can't afford it
0: Yeah, it is valid on six high-speed quads here at snowbird and Quads have a lot of capacity So we have a dedicated lane for fast tracks and it doesn't really impact the other guests and they're used to it now And they don't even notice it because we have a fast tracks lane and then a mountain school and seven summits lane and then all the other lanes. So there's really, it's a great experience for those who purchase it, but it's not impacting the other guests because we do limit it. We cap the numbers that we sell. And so it's really smoothed out this last year. And I think it'll be even smoother this coming season with adding gates and the incorporation into one piece of media. So the user experience will get even better
1: this year. So the tram has so far been excluded from fast tracks. Do you think that that will be an indefinite exclusion and that folks will have to always wait on the tram line? Yeah, because of
0: the capacity of the tram, we only load 90 to a hundred people per tram cabin. So you really don't have the bandwidth there to add another lane. Um, so. What our season pass holders tell us is that the tram is really important and all you have to do is come here on a powder day to understand the energy and the vibe of what it's like around the tram. So we think we'll keep it on the high speed quads and not include it on the tram going forward. That's working out
1: really well. So your powder sister resorts, Copper Mountain and Killington now offer fast tracks season passes. Is this something you've considered at Snowbird or will consider for the future? Yeah, we're watching that right now to see how that goes. And again,
0: it's great to be able to talk to Dustin and Mike and say, okay, what's what's this like? Fast Tracks was an existing program at Copper Mountain. So they have some history there. And I believe they sold that as a season pass historically um, in V1 of this product at Copper. So we're constantly talking to them and finding out how it's working. But every market's different and we have the flexibility to do what works best for Snowbird. So right now it'll just be a daily product, but I would leave that door open in case we decide it's something
1: that will work well for our pass holders. All right, Dave, let's talk about the gondola. So in July, the Utah Department of Transportation released its final recommendation to build an eight mile long gondola up Little Cottonwood Canyon with stops at Snowbird and Alta to help ease congestion. Snowbird has long been on record as supporting this project. Lay this out for us, Dave. What in your view would this gondola achieve?
0: Well, if I could back up a little bit and talk about the process. So the Utah Department of Transportation is responsible for the state highway that comes eight miles up Little Cottonwood Canyon, and that highway services Snowbird and Alta and the town of Alta, and numerous dispersed recreation sites in the canyon. And since the road was built in the 30s by the CCC in its current configuration, it's been a problem because there are 62 avalanche slide paths that impact the canyon. We get a lot of snow Here in Little Cottonwood, as you mentioned, we average 500 inches and the canyon has not worked very well as a transit system for a very long time. When Ted Johnson came up with the idea of Snowbird, he said, we need to build a gondola in the canyon (laughs) because there's no way you're going to be able to put cars on this road. It's a steep two-lane highway with the highest avalanche hazard index in North America by a wide margin. And so UDOT has spent 50 years studying this problem and trying to figure out what to do. And it really stepped up about five years ago when the legislature allocated, I think it was $80 million to start addressing this problem. And they commenced a environmental impact study for the canyon and as you, said in this summer in june they recommended a phased approach so phase one would be additional buses and little transit hubs at alta and snowbird and parking structures down near the mouth of the canyon as well as tolling phase two would be adding snow sheds at the main avalanche paths that run most frequently and phase three would be a gondola from outside the mouth of the canyon, stopping at Snowbird and Alta, It'd be about a 27-minute ride to Snowbird and then another five minutes over to Alta. So they're recommending a phased implementation. We very early on, as we the pivotal moment for me was going to Europe when we were shopping for new tram cabins, and I rode a Doppelmayr 3S gondola in Ischgl, austria that system can move four to five thousand people an hour and i wrote up that with tim and jake and hervig and i said this is it this is the solution that can work in little cottonwood canyon and we've been busing people for a long time and it really helps for sure but on a steep two-lane road The highway only works as well as the worst car or bus in it. And as soon as you have a slide off, everything comes to a halt. If the road's closed, nobody moves. With these 3S gondola systems, you can move people in the canyon regardless of what's going on with weather or avalanche. And
1: it's the perfect solution for this canyon. There's so much. Everything you just said makes sense, Dave. There's so much emotion around this decision and so many people who are so staunchly opposed to the notion of a gondola in Little Cottonwood Canyon, which they find offensive for a few different reasons. One being cost, one being a scar on the natural landscape you know, it's funny because everything you say, the road has not really worked well since it was built, right? You you would never, ever be able to build this road today. The the worst thing you can do in a wilderness area is build a paved road, right? So looking at this as a very pragmatic thing, how do you step back as a leader in support of this and take some of the emotion out of it and help folks understand that What's happening in the canyon is not sustainable and it's not an attack on anyone's way of life. It's it's just trying to create a safer, more sustainable way to move people up and down. It's a hard conversation to have and there's a lot of opposition to this. So how are you handling that as a leader?
0: Well, the first thing I do is acknowledge how important this place is to so many people. I mean, this is an incredible area it's a watershed for salt lake city it's we do have wilderness areas in the canyon it's public land Um, there's a lot of different recreation that goes on the canyon from climbing to biking to hiking to skiing to backcountry skiing a lot goes on in this canyon so i get it it's a very important place to a lot of people but as i looked at the options and we studied this very hard gondola is the least impactful on this place in terms of water and building cement, snowsheds, or expanding the highway. We feel like you can move people in and out of this canyon with the least amount of impact on the air quality, on the water quality. And I also acknowledge very openly that this is expensive, but what I've learned is how expensive transportation is in general every ski bus costs $650,000 wow. and they have a lifespan of between 10 and 15 years. Wow. They're also diesel. There are electric buses out there. You cannot buy an electric ski bus right now. Hmm. A ski bus means you have chains that deploy automatically hmm. It has a more powerful engine, more powerful brakes. So I think when people have opposition for environmental reasons, It's kind of confusing because Mm -hmm. what they're saying is it's okay to put 7,000 cars in this canyon (laughs) and have them sit idling at the mouth of the canyon in the morning and then idling in what we call the red snake going down the canyon. Mm -hmm. And is there a viewshed implication with towers? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. I do point out that there are currently 280 lift towers in Little Cottonwood Canyon, (laughs) but I get it. Yeah, there are towers, but the reason you have towers is because you need to span these avalanche paths. Snow needs to be able to move underneath these ta- or underneath the cables and not impact the towers. So, yeah, there are trade offs. But with what UDOT's proposing, with a twenty five hundred space parking garage outside the mouth of the canyon, off of the road, so there's not a high rise parking structure i like to illustrate to people 2,500 cars is how many total vehicles can park at Snowbird on the busiest days that were maxed out. So with a gondola, you could take every car that's going to Snowbird, put them in the parking structure, get them off the arterial roads that run through the communities of Cottonwood Heights and Granite and Sandy, put them in the parking structure so there's not traffic backed up into people's neighborhoods and then let people go ski. So every day, you know, okay, it's going to take me 27 minutes to get up to Snowbird. I can go ski as soon as I get there. I'm on the hill. Mm-hmm. I'm right above the base of the Peruvian lift. I can access Peruvian, Wilbur, Gadzum, Midgad, or the tram, and you're skiing. At the end of your day, you go down, take your skis off, climb in the gondola, you're at your car in 27 minutes, and you're out of here. And I just really commend UDOT for taking the very thorough and thoughtful approach to how to tackle this problem. And I think they've done a nice job and we're excited because we will be participating in this. We own the land where the gondola station would go. And what we said is, hey, UDOT, we bought this land. We'll either sell it to you for what we paid for it or give it to you as a public private partnership We'll pay for our season pass holders and employees to ride the gondola. And we have 1,100 acres outside the resort boundary. When gondola is constructed, we will put those acres into um, some kind of conservation easement. So they're never developed. And that includes Mount Superior, one of the most iconic peaks in the Wasatch. And I'm super grateful to work for a family and a company that,
1: that that supports that kind of environmental commitment it, it's there's, there's so much good stuff in there Dave I, I mean first of all it, it seems as though this gondola would it what it would essentially do is move the base of the resorts down below the really hardcore snow line right they're going to get some snow there but they're certainly not going to get 500 inches it would remove the road hazards and in in doing so would just make it a lot better experience for everyone and take a lot of stress off the environment. The the cost thing, clearly you're going to contribute. Snowbird is going to contribute that land at the base. There's been various scenarios floating around of how Alta and Snowbird and Powder would commit to this. What's the current thinking at Snowbird and Powder around what sort of financial piece of this you could or would be willing to, to contribute to the overall construction and maintenance costs.
0: Well, one of the things that was excluded from the UDOT EIS process was looking at revenue potential from each of these transportation solutions that they studied. And they studied everything from train to buses, to tunnels, to gondola. And the point I always made to them was, uh, if you build the longest gondola in the world, that goes up into the top of Little Cottonwood Canyon, you will have revenue from that. And that will offset your capital and operating costs of this installation. And because of the parameters of the EIS, they couldn't look at that, but that revenue will be significant. I know I sell summer trampasses passes <laughs> and we sell a lot of them. And if you could ride the gondola up to Alta and walk through the wildflowers or come up to Oktoberfest People are going to do that. If your family comes in from out of town Mm -hmm. and are you going to say to them, hey, let's go ride a bus up Little Cotton McCain. There's no way. But if you say, hey, we can ride up this stunning gondola and it has Wi-Fi and comfortable seats and it's one of the most beautiful rides in the world, you're going to do that and you're going to pay to do that. So I'll start with that. There's a lot of revenue on the table there, but we are open to exploring public-private partnerships. There's a lot of examples of that around the world, and we're definitely willing to talk about it. I met with UDOT last week and we're going to be meeting regularly to look at different ways we can support this because it is good for Snowbird, but it's also good for everybody coming up this canyon to recreate on a year-round basis. I would have loved if Everybody coming to Oktoberfest yesterday could have ridden a gondola. That would have been stunning. And I don't believe vehicles are the answer to this canyon. And I would have liked to see seen UDOT be even more aggressive and say, let's take more cars off the road. But this technology can support that. That's why I think it's a good decision.
1: So let's rewind to the beginning of this conversation and a few things that you brought up, Dave. One is how you had to keep employees overnight for 40 plus days this past season. And the other is those five-day closures of the canyon that occurred in April. How different do each of those things look projecting into the future if similar things happen, if that gondola exists?
0: Well, 42 goes to zero. Mm -hmm. Um, Our employees can go home at night, sleep in their own bed. I can't tell you how many difficult conversations I had with staff members who were stuck here for five days in a row about, Dave, I need to get out of here. I've got my kid's soccer game. I have my kid's uh, performance. I'm missing my vet appointment or my doctor's appointment. You know, These are big asks of employees to stay up here. You, The commitment level of our team is just stunning that they will put everything in their life aside for five days straight and be here to take care of our guests and make this place safe. But that goes away. People can go home. Our customers can go home. We also had guests trapped here for five days, missing flights. They'd like to get back to their lives too. So it frees all that up. And it also really improves the safety. When you're putting vehicles on the road, or you have a rescue say somebody gets hurt and you have to take somebody down the canyon when there is a road closure all that goes away and your safety goes up tremendously you know if the roads in a hazardous condition close it and the only way you can get up and down the canyon is on the gondola that would be great because then people can come and go freely and there's no safety the environmental impact is really improved. And I think many, many people would say, we
1: should have done this 50 years ago when they ride it. You know, it's easy for me sitting here across the country to say, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There seems to be a very passionate, well, there is a very passionate resistance on the ground. You're on the ground there every single day, Dave. You talk to your season pass holders, To what extent is the resistance we're seeing on social media and these organized groups, to what extent is this a a very loud minority? And to what extent does that represent the actual feelings on the ground? Are are the majority of people in favor of this, I guess is what I'm trying to ask, and and there's a lot of dust being blown up, or is this a a large group of people that you're really gonna have to learn how to work with and appease if you wanna get this thing built?
0: UDOT received over 30,000 comments during this process. So people are very engaged. A lot of that was driven by different user groups like Wasatch Backcountry Alliance and Save Our Canyons and Salt Lake Climbers Alliance and others. But people really care about this place. And I don't discount that for a minute. But what we saw is when we surveyed people statewide, that there was support for gondola. And it The takeaway from that process was the more people learned about gondola and how it works, the more they supported it. A lot of people don't realize that these are being put in around the world, not just in mountain environments, but in urban environments where they have to span dense population areas and move people from point A to point B. They're being used all over the world Because at the end of the day, they are quite cost-effective. They have a very long lifespan. They have a very low labor model. So as we educate people, they come around and they understand it. Some people will never come around, and that's okay. But if I've learned anything, change is hard. And people don't want to change because it's scary and it's different. But every time I talk to somebody who goes to Europe, they say, Those people have mountain transportation figured out. Why can't we do that here in the U.S.? Well, here you go. (laughs) UDOT agrees, and they have realized that a gondola is the best way to move people in this canyon. Now, it wouldn't work in Big Cottonwood Canyon. Big Cottonwood's too long, has too many bends. So UDOT's plan is put a gondola in Little Cottonwood Canyon, take all the ski buses, and move them to Big Cottonwood Canyon. That's a win-win in my opinion.
1: Well, it's a big project, it's a big vision. I wish you the best of luck with it. Let's wrap up here today, Dave, with a talk on the mountain. The first thing I wanna ask you about is the proposed Mary Ellen Gulch expansion. And you approved, secured approval from the Forest Service in 2016 to do this. Tell us about this potential expansion. Dave, what sort of terrain is over there? How much, what kind of lifts would serve it in? What's your current thinking around the probability or possibility of this happening?
0: Yeah, it was really um, the Utah County Board of Adjustment that gave us that approval. I think that was eight years ago, and it was a five-year approval to put a gondola from Hidden Peak, the top of the tram, over off the American Fork Twin Peaks, and then uh, the terminus would be on the far side of Marion Gulch, and then a lift coming back out. We renewed that five-year approval because... We're not ready to go there. We have a lot of capital investment we're doing here on the front side. It would add about 350 acres of terrain. Most of it we own. Um, the very top of it is forest service land in the upper Cirque, But we wanna keep that option open because we think that is our last expansion point over there. So we wanna keep that viable for as long as we can. Um, but we're not ready to go there yet. We're doing a lot of investment here. We built a cogeneration plant on site that generates almost six megawatts of powder, power. And so we're creating almost all of our own power here. And we have some chair lifts that we're looking to replace and we're investing in the buildings. So there's a lot going on here in terms of investment in our existing footprint, but we... We're not ruling that out. I'd like to get over there at one point.
1: Looks like the next major lift project will be Wilbur, which right now is an old fixed grip double, and you secured approval to replace and realign Wilbur. Tell us about the vision there. What sort of lift are you thinking? What will the new line look like? And what's your timeline?
0: So we are finalizing the approvals with the Forest Service to replace that lift with a Doppelmeyer fixed grip quad with a loading carpet and moving the loading area to what we call is the ballpark, the big area where GADZOOM mm-hmm. and Mid are mm. already stationed. Okay. So the base would be near the Bryce Astle Training Center, and then you would unload near the, or exactly where the current unload mm. is. Okay. And that's where more of the people are. The old Wilbur lift is in a depression, it's not a great spot. And that drive building was um no longer in code because it was a it is a old wooden structure and so we needed to replace that lift that's why it rose to the top of the priority list and we think we'll be able to get that open lift that lift open earlier and on avalanche control mornings it'll be good access for the ski team and for their training and races and that's going to be a very nice improvement and hopefully one day it opens up the opportunity for lift-served biking we've gotten out of that business but we'd like to one day get back in there
1: I mean snowbird is a fierce mountain and I would imagine that's what the majority of your skiers come for go off the cirque and do all the fun stuff up top the mountain does have some nice gentle terrain off of baby Thunder off the Midgad mid station those are both old double chairs Jackson Hole, which similarly has that fierce reputation for terrain, the snowbird has, has done a really nice job with the mid-station on their Sweetwater Gondola of becoming more of a family mountain. How much of a priority is this for you, Dave? How much do you think about developing that green terrain more, maybe putting a more modern lift in at Baby Thunder to create that lower mountain experience that might be more appealing to families?
0: Yeah, I think Jackson did a really nice job with those facilities and that terrain. Unfortunately, we just don't have as much of it. We spend a lot of time looking at Baby Thunder and trying to analyze. That's our least utilized pot. Mm-hmm. Um, we've used it for many different things from terrain park to beginner area, and it's still one of our favorite areas for teaching for the mountain school. Yeah. And that fixed grip double handles the crowds down there or lack of crowds easily. Yeah, um, We've looked at possibly bringing that lift into a different alignment, bringing the base up a little bit and bringing the top down. And we think it would be more user-friendly for first-time skiers, but uh, that's a work in progress. We spend a lot of time looking at Baby Thunder and trying to figure out how to make this mountain better for teaching mm-hmm. our instructors do an amazing job of navigating our our beginner skiers around the place but we're definitely known for the steep fall line terrain we have a lot of that and
1: for that kind of skier or snowboarder this is heaven your lift fleet otherwise is in great shape lots of modern high-speed quads as you survey the mountain obviously wilbur's getting an upgrade and you're thinking about baby thunder what's your wish list elsewhere for upgrades mike Salamano at killington noted that Powder was moving towards six packs and thought that future high-speed quad upgrades at that mountain would be Sixers and Copper's about to get its fourth and Bachelor's putting in its first this year. So what's your wish list and do you see a six-pack in Snowbird's future anywhere? Yeah, I think you'll see a six-pack here.
0: What we're working on is we'd like to improve the early morning experience on avalanche control days in Gad Valley. That's the first area of the mountain we opened. So we think um, a six-pack at Gadzoom would be really good. That lift, it was put in in 1997. So it has some hours on it. And so I think that's a natural place for a six-pack and also Mineral Basin. That terrain is so popular. And our guests just love to be back in Mineral Basin. You've probably seen the videos of the rope drop on Mineral (laughs) Those are awesome. that's a place to be. But our guests also say, hey, I love mineral, but I want to get out of it faster. So I think in the future, you'll see us working towards that. We're also going to expand the summit restaurant and replace the Midgad restaurant in the coming years. So a lot on the capital improvement project list coming up. And we just wrapped up um, our VEASAN installations. Those are remote avalanche control devices that are replacing howitzers that we've used since the resort opened. And we now have the largest collection of these remote avalanche control devices in North America. Wow. So we're seeing a lot of move towards technology here.
1: All right, Dave, I could do this all day, but I know you got to run. I will let you go. I really appreciate your time today. So much going on at Snowbird, so much good stuff to talk about. I really appreciate the time and the insight. So thank you very much. And and I hope you have another great season. Stuart,
0: it's been a true pleasure. Thank you very much.
1: That's Dave Fields, president and general manager of Snowbird Utah. That was just awesome, Dave. Thank you so much for that. I'm so glad we finally got to do that. And thank you all for listening. If you just found the pod today, I've got a whole bunch more Utah episodes in the library. Deer Valley, Solitude, Sundance, Snow Basin, and Beaver Mountain are there waiting for you right now. I am scheduled to record Park City soon as well. And if you're an icon skier, I've got more good stuff coming your way, including interviews with the leaders of Schweitzer, Big Sky, Sunday River, and an icon partner as of September 28th, Camelback, Pennsylvania. The very best way to get those episodes the moment they're live is to pop over to StormSkiing.com and subscribe to the StormSkiing newsletter. New pods appear in your email box several hours before syncing with the podcast services, including Apple and Spotify. There are free and paid tiers of the newsletter, and paid subscribers do receive podcasts seven days before everyone else. You can also follow the Storm on Twitter and Instagram at Journal. Until next time, stay well, stay safe. I'm Stuart Winchester, and I'll talk to you again very soon. The
0: Storm Skiing Podcast is a Quicksilver Films production.